Joy is distinctly a Christian word and a Christian thing. It is the reverse of happiness. Happiness is the result of what happens of an agreeable sort. Joy has its springs deep down inside. And that spring never runs dry no matter what happens. Only Jesus gives that joy. He had joy singing its music within even under the shadow of the cross. This morning we return to our, our current series, uh, Joy, a study in Philippians after short Advent hiatus. And, and I think it's a good time uh, to get back to studying joy. And the reason I think that is because, as I kind of mentioned earlier, post-Christmas can seem kind of joyless. Seems kind of blah. You know what I mean? We, we, we start the month of December with bright lights and, and pretty trees and expectations of gifts and, and family celebrations. Um, and then it's over, and it kind of feels humbuggish, doesn't it? How many of you guys are excited about taking your lights down? And, and is there anything more depressing than driving through your neighborhood and seeing brown Christmas trees thrown in the gutter? Right? And you think about the gifts that you so anticipated, and, and all you can do is say, what were they thinking when they bought that for me? Right? And then you think back on the celebrations, and you realize... All you did was gain about 10 pounds this week, right? So for a lot of us, we, we come into this and, and there really isn't any joy left. And the reason you don't feel joyous anymore is because it wasn't true joy that you were feeling. Um, at least not biblical joy. At least not the joy that Samuel Gordon is speaking about in the quote that I started the message with. It's more akin to happiness, a feeling of elation that comes as a result of circumstances, but when the circumstances change, the feeling changes. The study we're looking at highlights the nature of joy spoken of in Scripture and given by Jesus Christ. The illustration of joy in Philippians is powerful because of the context of the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians speaks about joy and rejoicing a lot. In fact, in fact, about 15 different times in four short chapters, the words joy or rejoicing pop up. Um, in fact, that, that passage that we've heard before, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, is found in Philippians chapter 4. And the reason why um, that reality, that truth is so, is so powerful as we, as we look at Philippians, is because of the context of the writing of Philippians. Paul is writing this book that is, that is woven all throughout with this idea of joy, of rejoicing. Rejoicing always. He, he, he writes in there and he, and, he says, and he says, I'm always praying with joy for you. He, he writes in there and he says, I, I'm reflecting on your faith. I'm reflecting on your growth and I'm at joy. What's so powerful about that declaration is he's writing that as he's sitting in a Roman prison. Now, we've talked about this over the last, uh, over the last, over the last few weeks of the series, that this prison was not an easy situation. Most likely, it was buried under the ground, it, it, uh, under the streets of Rome. He, he's sitting there in his own feces. There's, there's water and junk that gets, that, gets, that gets washed down into his pit. 
Most likely, he, he's chained to a wall. He's got, he's got guards standing around him. And as he's in this condition, he writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. In these circumstances, he rejoices. He, he prays with joy. He's encouraged in joy. So the joy that we're talking about is not circumstance-dependent. Because it is a joy that comes as a result of the transcendent nature of Jesus' work in our lives. You read Philippians and all throughout, Paul is referring to his faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, it's that passage in which he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says that we are rooted, we, our joy is rooted in the transcendent nature of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us and has very little to do with our circumstances. When we know him and love him and seek him more than the good circumstances of this life, we will have joy transcendent. And so with that understanding, let's pick up where we left off in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray God's blessing on, on the teaching of his word this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that every time we come into your presence, every time we, we come into a place in which we reflect on your word, we have the opportunity to be changed. We have the opportunity to be deeply changed by, by the power of your Holy Spirit because of the words of your spirit given to us. I pray, Lord, that as we receive the truth of your word this morning, we will allow it to challenge us and allow it to change us. In your precious name we pray, amen. As we get into this, I want to start with that opening idea that we see in verse 12. It's where he says, as you have always obeyed. Now think about just that word. Think about the idea, obeyed. As you have always obeyed. Now, now, the, now the admonition here to obey is not one that we should just read over or take lightly. As you always obey. Obey what? O -o obey who? This is an important question to ask, isn't it? If we're being challenged by God's word to obey, who do we obey? What is it that we're obeying? And, and particularly here, that's an important question because the word translated obey from the Greek is the word hupakuo. And I want you guys to hear the definition of hupakuo. Hupakuo means to hear and comprehend coming totally under the power, authority, control. Who or what do you obey? This is the implication that we are completely and totally under the control. Completely or totally under the authority of something. 
What is it that, that we're being admonished to, to, to come under authority to? What is it we're admonished to obey? I think the best way to understand that word, the, the word that he's calling us to obey, is to look back a few weeks and a few verses up at the last time he used the idea of obey. If, if, you, if you jump back to verse 7, this is what he writes. But Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So before Paul gets into this conversation about our obedience, he's already laid out a pathway of obedience, an example of obedience, a standard of obedience in Jesus Christ. He, he begins to speak and he says, this is what it was for Christ. This is what Christ did. He, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He's calling us in this passage to emulate the obedience of Jesus. As we look at, at biblical joy that, that transcends circumstances, Paul is holding out Jesus' obedience as a starting point. We have a transcendent joy that comes when we obey, when we live, when we submit to something that is outside ourselves, that is beyond ourselves. The passage we just read explains the experience that Jesus Christ had in the Garden of Gethsemane, doesn't it? It speaks directly to the narrative we see recorded in Matthew chapter 26. It says, He fell on his face, this is Jesus, He fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father... If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. The, the, the passage that we read in Philippians is describing that interaction that took place between Jesus and his heavenly Father. He's coming to this moment and he's facing these circumstances and he says, listen, whatever you want me to do, whatever you call me to do, I'll do. Whatever, whichever way you direct me, whatever, whatever you ask of me, I don't necessarily want to do this, but I'm willing to do this in obedience to you. He obeyed. He faced his circumstances and made a choice of obedience to the Father. And Paul comes out of Christ's expression of obedience lived out in his gospel life, in the life that Jesus lived. And he calls us to emulate that obedience in our lives. It's again, as we've talked about a lot in the past, it's again a picture of the impression of the gospel of Jesus Christ on our lives. The call of every believer is to live the gospel. What does that mean? It means we look at the life, we look at the teaching, we, we look at the death, we look at the resurrection, the glorification of who Jesus Christ is, and we see that as the example for the life we live. Too often, a lot of times, we, we've rooted ourselves only in the idea that the gospel, the good news, is that Jesus Christ died for us, and if we accept him, we have salvation. And although that is, that is paramount, that is, that is unbelievably important to what it means to be a Christian, the gospel message doesn't stop there. We're called to impress upon our own lives what Jesus calls us to, what Jesus did. Live out the gospel. And in this regard, Jesus Christ sets for us the example of obedience. We as Christians are supposed to be well-versed in the practice of obedience. But obedience to what? 
It says here that we are, we are to obey, and we're still asking the question, what are we to obey? What we're supposed to obey as Christians is the picture that Paul laid out before he called our obedience. We're to obey the nature, the life, the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's not about obedience to men. And as I say that, that's not to say we never obey a man. As an expression of faith, we may submit in obedience to man. But the obedience is only the byproduct of a life of obedience to our Father. Authority that asks of us a loyalty or obedience to an ideal that is counter to the nature of God is not an authority that's supposed to be recognized. It's not simply about a person. It's about Jesus. John MacArthur comments on this passage and he says, There is never a time when a true believer is not responsible to obey the Lord. Believers must never be primarily dependent on their pastor, teacher, Christian fellowship, or anyone else for their spiritual strength and growth. Their supreme example is the Lord Jesus Christ, and their true power comes from the Holy Spirit. Believers, gratefully, are never without Christ's example and never without the Spirit's power. The example that's laid out here is the way in which Jesus obeyed, you obey. The way in which Jesus practiced obedience, you practice obedience. We have to see obedience to God, God, his word, and his Holy Spirit, authorities that are always in concert with one another, as foundational to the Christian expression of the gospel in, their li- in our lives. And as we speak about a joy that transcends circumstances, I, I, want, I want to remind you where the example of Christ's obedience led him. The example that, that, that Paul uses in Philippians, the example that we read about in Matthew, where Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. I live in obedience. Where does Paul say it led him? Obedience even to death. The obedience that, that, that is, that is uh, illustrated here, the obedience that is used for us to emulate is an obedience that led to the cross. Obedience to God does not always mean a great end game here on this life. It means a willingness to die. It means a willingness to die to self. It means a willingness to find suffering in our lives for the sake of him. It means saying, not my will, not my wants, not my comforts, not what I want to do and what I want to experience, but what he has for me. This is the obedience that he calls us to. So obey Paul says. So we are called to obey as a reflection of the gospel of Christ. We are called here to this submission. And that idea is so important to understand because it sets, it sets the table for the next portion of this morning's text. Remember obedience as the lead-in to what he says next. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. There are two parts of this passage I think are important to understand. The first part is this. 
Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now remember, again, this follows the encouragement to obedience. And then he goes in and he says, work out your own salvation. What does it mean to work out your own salvation? What does it mean to work out your own salvation? There's one way in which this passage, unfortunately, gets taught. Um, and it's within the construct or the understanding of earning or working for your salvation. The reading of this passage in that way leads to a theology that promotes the idea that we are working to secure our salvation. But that's not at all what this passage is actually saying. It doesn't say work for salvation. It says work out salvation. What it's meaning is to put your salvation into practice. We just came out, came out of the passage that holds Jesus as the example of obedience. And then he says, work out your salvation. I always liked how Will Pounds explains it. He says, work out what God has worked in when you were born again. I, I love the way he says that. What you're doing is you're working out into your existence. You're working out into your life. You're working out into the things you say and the things that you do, what God's already worked in you through his salvation. Or, as Spurgeon puts it, what is to be worked out must first be worked in. An unconverted man can work nothing out, for there is nothing in. You have faith. Work it out then. Act like a believer. Trust God in a daily life. Be you Christ-like inasmuch as the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Salvation is to be worked out. So the passage is, is talking about that progressive expression of the nature of Christ that was implanted at you at your salvation and that is supposed to be continually being worked out in the life that you live. He saved you. He, he put his, his mark on you. He put the image of Christ on you. He confirmed it by the Holy Spirit. And as a result, we as his children are to be working out this expression of truth that is our salvation. But there's this, there's this beautiful, personal, interactive implication to this passage. There's this beautiful uh, incredible idea that he is working, that we are working out our salvation in conjunction with God in our lives. It, it's this idea that, that I've talked about in the past that I just love about understanding the nature of our, our, our salvation. The Bible describes, the Bible says over and over again that we serve a living God. It's meant to be in contrast to the static gods of the day. It was meant to be in contrast to the, to, the, to the gods who were made of wood and made of stone and made of gold that are just there sitting there. But we serve a living God, meaning the Spirit of God is constantly interacting with us. The Spirit of God is constantly working on us. The Spirit of God is constantly speaking to us. If we listen, work out your salvation. How many of you know that, that your Christian walk doesn't look exactly like my Christian walk. How many of you know that your challenges, your struggles, God's calling in your life, living out your faith, 
looks different than my life. There is a common plumb line without any question. The Word of God teaches truth. The Word of God tells us in, in the gospel message of Jesus Christ, it tells us what is sin and what is not sin. But the working out of our salvation is something which God is doing in each one of our lives. One of the best examples of this I ever had in my life was my freshman year uh, of Bible college. <clears throat> when you go to Bible college, um, you have to fill your time with a lot of things um, because we don't get to do the things that a lot of other people did at other colleges because you were in Bible college. And so for us, we, sp- felt, we filled a lot of our time playing basketball. We did a lot of basketball playing. I mean, it was constant. We go to classes in the morning. We usually had lunch. We had lunch, and then we'd go and play basketball for about two hours in the afternoon. We'd go back to the dorms. We'd shower up. We'd go to dinner. We'd go back to the gym, and we'd play basketball for about three hours. We did that, like, Monday through Friday. Saturdays, we played for about six hours straight. The only things we ever did as Bible college students was play basketball and ping. Anything else we get kicked out of school for, so those are the only two things we could do. And I had a buddy of mine <clears throat> that never went and played basketball with us. I was there my freshman year. I'd come in. He was a year older than I was, and, and he never went and played basketball. It's the only thing we ever did. He never played basketball. We'd go to play basketball. He'd go back to his, he'd go back to his, his, his dorm room. He, we'd go to play basketball. He'd go to the prayer room. We'd go to play basketball. He'd go to the library. We would go to play basketball. He was never with us. After a few weeks of this, I went up to him, and I said, hey, man, why don't you ever play basketball with us? And he said, because God won't let me. And I said, what do you mean? Now, how many of you guys think God thinks basketball is sin? It, it was the only thing we could do for crying out loud. And, and he said, God won't let me do it. So I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, he said last year I was playing in our inter- inter- intramural league and we were playing against the, 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 the staff, the faculty staff, against the, our, our floor. And he said, I got fouled. And he said, I just lost it. And he said, I was screaming and I was hollering. I threw the ball and, and I stormed out. And as I was walking back to my dorm, God spoke to my heart and says, you're not allowed to play basketball for one year. Your behavior, your actions, your attitude uh, does not reflect what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You're not allowed to play basketball for one year. Now, as I said, there is no, there is no sin in playing basketball, is there? But there would have been sin if he played basketball. Because God speaks to us. God interacts with us. God is working out his salvation in us. And we are called to obedience. When Jesus Christ sets that example, he says, listen, die to self. Lay it aside. Be willing to do what the Spirit of God leads you to do. Be willing to do what God is speaking to you to do. Be willing to do whatever the Father asks of you to do, even if it's difficult. And so we find ourselves in this place of working out our own salvation. Do you see why this lead, the lead-in is obedience? The passage expresses the freedom of choice in obedience as Christ is working in you to work out his salvation. And that happens through obedience. It happens through submission. As I say, this is about the interactive relationship we have as believers. So here's how it is working thus far. Christ has worked in you his image through salvation. He has given you his gospel example, his word, his Holy Spirit, 
And he's calling you to simply to obey, to submit to what he is leading you to in your life. Work out your own salvation. But there's an important addendum to that progressive work. Work out your own salvation in what? Fear and trembling. Every time I come to that passage, it strikes me as deeply impactful. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. What does that mean? This passage became really important to me in my teens. I grew up with a Christian faith. I think that was different than a lot of you guys probably have now. I grew up in a, in a Christian faith in which um, we had greater restrictions. Um, we had, we, and, and, and for a while, it, it kind of fluctuated with, with me and my family, but um, you know, we had all the we had all the standard ones like you know don't smoke, don't chew, don't go out with girls who do. But we also had we also had things like don't go to movies. And you couldn't go to movies; it didn't matter what movie it was. You, you didn't go to a Disney movie because if you went into the theater and somebody saw you walk into the theater, they didn't know what movie you were going to. You could have been going to an R-rated movie, so you didn't go to theaters. And we and we didn't dance. You never danced. Dancing was not not a good thing to do. Now, for those of you who have ever seen me dance, you would know that's a, that's a reasonable restriction. <laughs> that's something we should be doing. And even if you should, you shouldn't be doing it. <laughs> but, when I was, but when I was about 16, 17, 18 years of age, there was a place that was near my house. Um, it was called The Attic. Anybody remember The Attic? See, that's crazy. A few of you do. Now, The Attic was basically a nightclub dance place, right? And when I was 16, 17, 18 years of age, they would have this under-21 dance night there. And um, you would go there, um, uh, you know, to dance. I didn't go there to dance because I couldn't dance. You'd go there to meet girls, usually girls who smoked and chewed. <laughs> and, and I remember, I remember this specifically. I remember this specifically interacting with a dear friend of mine. His name was David Peterson. Uh, David was my pastor's son. David was like a spiritual older brother to me. He's about 10 years older than I am. He's the one who taught me actually how to drive stick shift with his, with his uh, fire engine red Celica. And uh, I remember walking, going for a walk with him once at, outside his apartment in Wauwatosa. And I was wrestling with this uh, dance night idea, going to a dance night. And I remember sitting with David and saying, David, I don't, I don't know what to do. Like there's people who are doing it. There's, there's guys that I know. Uh, from the youth group that go there, and I'm just not sure what to do. And I remember David pulling out this passage, and he said, Tommy, I can't really tell you. I can't tell you whether to do it or not to do it. I don't think the Bible is that clear on it. But the Bible says, work out your own salvation. And he says, you need to be in this interactive relationship with God. You need to be praying and seeking his direction in your life. But he didn't stop that there. He didn't stop in that place. And he said, but you've got to remember, Tommy, you have to work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. He said, you've got to realize the majesty of who God is, the holiness of who God is. And as you come to these questions, as you seek to follow God, you have to be in a place in which you are submitted 
to the fullness of who God is. His holiness, his majesty, his righteousness, his sovereignty. I fear we live our lives far too flippantly. Many of us are good with working out our own salvation. We attach onto that. We like that idea. I'm going to do what I feel I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do what I feel God's telling me to do. Don't tell me what to do because I'm working out my own salvation. But I fear that too many of us work out our own salvation with fun and games and not fear and trembling. I feel too many of us work out our own salvation with a wink and a nod and not fear and trembling. I can't tell you how many people behave in ways that do not reflect what the Word of God says. And they justify it by saying, uh, me and God kind of have a deal. The Holy Spirit has told me that it's okay. I mean, I'm here to tell you, you have no deal with God. There, there is no wink and nod between you and God. God's word is very clear on certain things, and God is asking us to work out our own salvation in light of the holiness of who God is. We ignore what we should do. We, we justify our actions. We respond to our desires instead of God's calling in our lives. This is, this is at the center of, of, of all sorts of selfish and self-serving theologies and lifestyles. We're not supposed to be looking for excuses to accommodate our sin or the sin of others. We're supposed to be submitting to his word and Christ's example so we stand out from the world. And in case, in case you don't think what I'm saying is true, I want you to look at the verse again, right? What, what does he say? He's saying, why, why do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? So that we will be Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We, we are too busy trying to look like the world so we don't shine in the world. We are too busy trying to accommodate the sins of the world so we don't stand out and shine in this crooked generation. He is God. He is to be respected. He is to be bowed to. And when he speaks through his word, when he speaks through Christ's example, when he speaks through his, his Holy Spirit in your life, you need to pay heed. Work out your own salvation. In, in light of the majesty of God, in light of God's kingship over your life, work out your own salvation. So many of us forget that reality. When we came to faith in Jesus Christ, we took ourselves off the throne and put Jesus there. He reigns, he rules in your life. It's what he wants. It's obedience to him. It's not my will, but your will be done in me. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling knowing that that obedience leads to sacrifice, to selflessness, to the cross, 
to maybe death itself. In fact, we know that's the case. Scripture talks about it all the time, that we are called to daily die to self. This is what it means to work out your salvation. Now, as we talk about this, as we, as we lay out the example of Jesus Christ, as I emphasize the idea that we're supposed to die to self, that we're supposed to give of ourselves, that we're supposed to live in obedience, that we're supposed to be in an interactive relationship with Jesus Christ, it's a tall order, isn't it? To work out a salvation that emulates the sacrifice of Jesus, a salvation that puts to death my will and my wants for the sake of Christ, that's a tall order, isn't it? But that's why we are blessed with the next statement of Paul, the passage we have before us. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working in you to make you willing and able to obey him. It's not just in and of ourselves. It's not just ourselves isolated from the power of God, from the, from the majesty of God. We are not doing this on our own. We're called to listen to him, to understand him, to know him. Have you ever found yourself given a task too difficult for you to perform? I, I look back at my life, and anytime I think about that, I can't help but be rushed back to when I was a little boy. I mean, really little, like four or five years of age, six years of age. Right around Christmas time. And the family would get together and we decorate the tree. And we decorated the tree the right way, right? All the big ornaments on the bottom and all the small ornaments on the top, right? And as a kid, I loved the little ornaments. They were my, they were my favorite ornaments. They were small and they were cute. And they were, they, you know, there'd be, there'd be little, little, little bears or there would be just these tiny little things. And as a six-year-old kid, seven-year-old kid, I loved them. But you know what was impossible for me? To get up there. And to hang them. And I remember what we would do. Every time I would pick out an ornament that I loved, a small ornament that I loved, that I wanted to hang that was small, I'd walk over to my dad with it in my hands, and my dad would grab me from behind, and he'd lift me up to the top of the tree so I could hang it up there. This is what the Spirit of God does for us. We find ourselves in a place in which we can't do it. We don't have the ability to live out that way, to, to follow him in this way. But God is working in you so that you can work out your salvation in a way that honors and glorifies and beautifies Jesus Christ. God through Christ set the bar. His gospel example. And God through the Holy Spirit is lifting us up to that example. This is why you can't live separated from the Spirit of God. This is why you have to live in communion with the Spirit of God. You have to hear Him, and you have to, and you have to commune with Him, and you have to allow Him to work in you, because you can't do it on your own. James Hastings describes this passage, and he says this, this virtually is what St. Paul says here. Work out your own salvation 
For now the great impossibility has become possible. God is working in you. This is no hopeless task to which I am calling you, no fruitless beating of the air, no idle effort of the leper to change his spots. The Lord is working in you, and he is mighty to save. You can do this. This is, it is simple. Not easy, but simple. Submission to the teaching of the Holy Spirit will allow you to work out your salvation this life because God is empowering you to will and to act that obedient submission. This is the nature of that interactive, obedient working out of your salvation. Connecting to the Holy Spirit in a powerful way. Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? Are you spending time in his presence? Are you listening to what his word says? Are you listening to what his spirit is speaking to you? So many of us struggle in our faith because we are so disconnected from the interactive nature of the faith we have. The Holy Spirit is here this morning. He's here this morning to speak to each one of us. To will and to act so that we can work out our salvation in our lives. The question is, will you listen? Will you press in? Will you hear what he speaks to you? 